Welcome to the Chasing Faith Podcast. Here, several times a month, Reverend Dr. Stephen Bauman will sit down with members of Christ Church and other special guests to discuss issues of faith in a way that leads us to a more authentic, open, honest, and generous expression of what we truly believe. Our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Steve Pilkington. Dr. Pilkington began his service at Christ Church in 1994. He oversees all of the music ministries at Christ Church, as well as serves on the faculty of Westminster Choir College, where he serves as Associate Professor of Sacred Music. A graduate of St. Olaf College and the University of Illinois, Steve earned his PhD from Drew University. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Steve Pilkington. Well, I am so pleased that uh, Dr. Steve Pilkington has agreed to have this conversation with us. Gosh, Steve, you have been at Christ Church now, well, how many years has it been? I'm not a, a counter in that way, but I think it's around 26 or 27. Yeah, I was going to say in that range as well. So I'm, I'm starting my 34th. And uh, a few years into my tenure here, I was introduced to you by the, your predecessor at Christ Church, Donald McDonald, who came to me and said, and he was thinking about his departure. And by then, he and I had developed a warm relationship, and he wanted to write by me. And he said something like, quietly, in his understated way, Steve, I think you should meet someone. I think he's who you're looking for. And that's kind of how I reached out, why I reached out to you. Not kind of, it is the reason I reached out to you. Um, and now 25, 26 years later, we're still at this together, which as one of our colleagues pointed out recently, that's a long time for a partnership in ministry to last. But I think what uh, a place to begin for us would be for you to fill our listeners in a little bit on your background, that is uh, your your faith history, and it just kind of bring us into your world, how you grew up and and how you landed doing what you're doing. Um, well, I think I'll actually start backwards, um, okay. meaning that introduction from Donald McDonald. And I would say quickly, <laughs> I was so uninterested at the time. Uh, I've been living and working and major horsing around in Los Angeles in my 20s, early 30s, and very unexpectedly uh, garnered this job at Westminster Choir College in Princeton. And it's uh, one of the premier schools for a hundred years now that's trained church musicians. So it was a very seductive opportunity. Um, and I leapt at it because I was still young enough to be extraordinarily foolish, having never really taught a college class, having no degree in sacred music, um, but creative and um, forward-looking and um, loving the church at that point. But your question about faith journey, part of the answer would be um, being aware of those moments when they pass, meaning um, 
things you don't expect that change your life. And wanting to put a, uh, a name on it. So I grew up in the Midwest, um, <laughs> like gazillions of New Yorkers, I'm sure. You know, there's a reason you land in New York and start hiding <laughs> out or hanging out. I mean, it's a self-selecting city. And um, so I came from an odd background, um, born to uh, my parents were married, but my father, I believe, was a freshman in college and my mother a year older. And this is in uh, Kansas. So I like to say I was born in Manhattan. Um, <laughs> yep. then, Manhattan, Kansas. Add Kansas, <laughs> but other times not, um, which is a college town. Um, without making it a super long story, which is a bad habit of mine, which my students could readily testify to, um, the gospel seed was planted in me by a a crazy redheaded, I think four foot 11 Irish grandmother. And I think she probably was crazy. Um, crazy and probably an abused person sense. Um, and this is now on, uh, my parents came from Western Kansas, which is really hard scrabble land. You've read the grapes of wrath. It's very much that territory. Mm. But she really loved Jesus, and she didn't, they were Presbyterians, so Presbyterians really, especially at that time, don't use that kind of evangelical language. But um, I've thought a lot about this, and, you know, nature, nurture, um, so many things that we become, and um, I would say actually i feel like when i say gospel seed planted um it's in my dna and i do think i i had a choice of course and at some point i did have a conscious awareness that the things i was doing professionally meant more than just a church job and there was no great awakening great awakening, um, actually. I mean, there were these many moments like meeting you and not being interested and then oddly interested. <laughs> and, you know, all these decades later. Um, and in some respects, of course, it was my choice. In other respects, I'm not so sure it was. Um, and I think the last thing I would say is just part of the my gradual awareness of this being so meaningful to me, meaning the journey, were many uh, musical moments, of course. And <clears throat> I can identify one, which was, um, you know, I. <laughs> those of you who know me might not be surprised by this, but a very geeky child. And big black glasses that look like Woody Allen was my father and um, completely not self-aware and very introverted and awkward and uh, had a lot of things to figure out. 
But I landed at St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. And it's a Lutheran college at that time, about 3,400 students and a very, very strong music tradition and uh, a great college choir, um, which you can hear bits and pieces of shimmering in my own choral work here at the church. And certainly my own arrangements are rooted in what I heard at, at college. For choral musicians, it's usually your college choir that determines who you are in terms of uh, musical identity. But all of a sudden, I found myself surrounded like a lot of people like me, and it was shocking <laughs> uh, to find people interested in things I was interested in, people that were bright, um, people that were funny, and I discovered that I was funny funny in multiple ways. <laughs> um, but uh, one, actually it's when I turned 18, I went to college a little early. Um, one, one All Saints even song. I went with a buddy to the cathedral, the Episcopal Cathedral in Minneapolis, and um, heard a piece by Maurice Durufle, a requiem. Um, and some of the scales started to fall from my eyes and my ears were unstopped and I couldn't put language on it, but something, something profound had taken place. Hmm. Long answer. No, I understand that. You know, when we first met <clears throat> and, um, started dialoguing about, Christchurch, one of the things I sensed about you was that you had uh, an innate spirituality and an, an innate faith, which in my experience wasn't always the case within church musicians, oddly enough. I suppose a lot of our listeners don't really know that, that there's a lot of church musicians who aren't terribly uh, invested in the faith itself. They are music makers, but um, and the church provides an opportunity and an arena for that. But it's, it's not as common as we might think to have mm -hmm. a gifted musician attached to an active faith. And I sensed that in you, and I was so wanting that in my own uh, <clears throat> partnering with colleagues and I've sought it in other colleagues as well uh, as they've come along. But that was one thing I sensed in you from the very beginning. Um, and as you know, historically, music was my pathway to God as well. It is the way I say it is that it's what opened my heart. You just said the scales fell from your eyes. It's another way to say it. Um, but my heart was opened, if you will, and music became my most direct access to the inner life. Um, that is still true to a high degree, not completely, but a high degree. Well, so, so picking up the pieces somewhere along the line <clears throat> at St. Olaf, you decided to move professionally in this direction. That, that came at St. Olaf? 
Uh, <laughs> no, I was still busy being very unaware as to my own personhood. And I loved playing the organ, um, oddly. I don't know where that came from. Actually, um, I always thought I wanted to be a pianist, but my parents had a very long journey to get my father through a PhD in animal husbandry, which didn't make father-son a fabulous match. Um, I remember the first time he took me to see some of his research, which was a giant freezer locker with slabs of slaughtered cattle hanging on hooks and this sensitive <laughs> child was horrified by um, this encounter. Look what your daddy does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, so it was a very long journey with a wife and a kid to get a PhD. Um, right. So there was no money to buy a piano. And um, then I thought I wanted to be an architect. But when my dad finally uh, got his degree and we moved to the Chicago area and he got a, a decent job, he had promised that uh, piano would be one of the first things I would buy. And it was a crummy, crummy spinet in hindsight, but um, a very sweet story. And... So I quickly went, my folks attended a suburban Lutheran church and, you know, Steve and I, uh, we could talk about this, but have that commonality of being from the Midwest and growing up in Lutheran land and the things that brought to our youth. Um, but again, this nature nurture thing, um, I just needed to play the organ and um, don't know where that came from. There aren't many, very many of us who choose such an instrument. Um, so at St. Alpha, I was pursuing that, but it's, it's like I didn't even have the clarity to think of, oh, well, I want to be this when I grow up. I was just busy doing and not a I was doing a lot of thinking about all the things I was discovering, friends and uh, a lifestyle and music and those things. But much to my father's regret and chagrin, um, you know, I wasn't thinking about, well, what is a good paying job for someone like me? Um, and so choosing that sort of came much later. And to be honest, I was afraid to choose it. Um, you know, making music, um, as an organist, you can kind of hide behind this monstrous machine that's really like a cockpit of a, uh, a right. jet or something with all its knobs and lights and buttons and stuff. But it was the choral thing that terrified me because if you're standing in front of musicians and you're singing about important things, to do it well, you have to be vulnerable and open. And of course, for an introvert and a geek, uh, those those are the things you don't want to do. <laughs> and so I avoided it a really long time, but through uh, lots of many long stories and drama and such things to be told at another time in a, another place that involves beer or something, um, <laughs> I had another one of those things. Um, where events 
coincided in a bizarre way that um, I couldn't explain uh, at all. And I found myself um, on the podium in an interim situation and had six weeks to prove myself. Um, I was hired as an organist, uh, but in no way involved in the conducting. And it happened to be the six weeks before Easter, so it was Lent. And so I spent most of that journey <laughs> being not far from Hollywood, manufacturing the most spectacular Easter I could, which I still like to do, by the way. Um, <laughs> and can't wait till we're back in our space to really um, bring on Metro Mayor Goldwyn, whatever, a big cinematic resurrection this, this coming year. Um, anyway, I ended up getting the job and I just flew like crazy, meaning in terms of uh, success and um, I had a lot of hair at that time and um, the ladies thought I looked like an apostle <laughs> and um, Lots of fans and lots of fun and lots of people my age and lots of just a real diversity and connections for a lifetime, I would say. And that's actually how I ended up at Westminster um, because I was this newish flash on the West Coast and they were looking for something newish and probably looking for what you were looking for, someone who was invested in a different kind of way and not just a level, a certain level of talent. But by the time I got to Princeton where Westminster is located, I, I could say what I felt, could articulate it. Um, and bizarrely to me, could even articulate it in a classroom. And I say bizarrely because all the things I've told you about myself as a young man wouldn't predict um, that I would be a good teacher or a good conductor because both of those demand a certain kind of extroversion. And again, it's still a mystery to me. I like performing in church. I mean, that means more to me than anything. But I also like the Wednesday night rehearsals where I'm the center of attention. <laughs> <laughs> um, although, of course, my job and what I really ultimately do is draw the focus where it belongs, which is through me, not on me. But I was just amazed to find myself a performer in the classroom as well. And, you know, my name at school is Dr. P and it's a very affectionate name. And they think I'm a crazy as a, a loon. Um, and they're correct. But um, in the craziness, a lot of learning happens. Mm -hmm. um, and once I discovered that, I got a little crazier because it was working for me. Um, so I'm just babbling here and wondering so, the byways of my life. Yeah. Well, a lot has changed since you started. Uh, that's almost 30 years ago, right, at Westminster? Yeah. So and I'm... It was two years before I, I moved in 92. Um, and I did other stuff for a couple of years before. I, I didn't want to, I was nervous about a full-time college job. Um, right. I didn't take a church job for two years. So I started at Christ Church in the fall of 94. 
Right. Uh-huh. Um, so different time, you know, different universe almost for the church. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how it's all evolved for you, both, both from the faith standpoint, how has your faith evolved since, since this journey took off? Uh, as a young man, um, and then we can get into uh, how it's evolved for the church. But I'm kind of curious about your own uh, inner life, your own faith over the last 30 years. How is that? What would you say about that? Um, well, I'd like to say that Gospel Seed has born um, a la last week's sermon. Um, I don't know if I'm mighty, but I would say I'm a oak of righteousness. Yes, I would too. I'm not. Well, I can say <laughs> an oak of self-righteousness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but meaning I feel like my faith is like um, there are a lot of oak trees in the Midwest. I know what a mighty, mighty oak looks like. Um, and I would say, um, you know, exponential growth, um, like every human uh, in recent times, there's been a lot of trouble in my life at Westminster, um, which involves a land grant, land grab by a, a president of the university that's uh, ultimately caused the college to leave Princeton and uh, move to the main campus of Ryder University. And it's been very traumatic um, for the school, for the students, many of the faculty have left. And um, not how I dreamed that my career would be ending. Um, Not that I'm ready to stop, but, um, you know, thinking about the season I'm in, um, and so there have been some valleys without a, a doubt, um, you know, out of the depths, I cry to thee, the psalmist, uh, shouts and I've done a bunch of that. Uh, I don't think it's withered my faith. Um, but certainly, um, I like this, uh, song by Leonard Cohen, um, everybody knows Hallelujah, I think, um, but um, song called Anthem. And the key repeated freeze, phrase in that song over and over is, um, there's a crack in everything. There's a crack in everything. And that's how the light gets in. And so... It's good theology. It is. Um, and I feel like I've been cracked. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um severely and uh again surprised because that's not how it was supposed to be but that also seems biblical (laughs) oftentimes uh, when god demands attention it's uh, in these unexpected ways and it's often relentless Um, yeah yeah i would observe that you know one of the uh gifts that comes along with having a long-term relationship with a colleague is that uh, 
you see the evolution. And I'm, I'm thinking that we couldn't have had this conversation 25 years ago in quite the same manner, depth and meaning that we're now having it. Now, some of that is just simple age, but uh, some of it is also indicative of, a, of an ongoing process of growing, deepening, um, settling, and opening. Um, you're a you're a much more open and more transparent today than you were 25 years ago. For instance, I mean, I'm just well. That's just horrifying to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you you just said that in order to be an effective uh, conductor, <clears throat> you have to be vulnerable, and I, I, I don't. I think. Authentic vulnerability only leads to a deepening and a broadening and creating a a bigger interior space for in our using the language we might use in which God can reside. So we create a greater space in which God can reside, and we can hold more than we used to be able to hold. Sounds like a familiar sermon. <laughs> <laughs> One of yeah. your great themes. <laughs> well, I, you know, I just, I am so aware that so much of Christianity is about cramming something down your throat as opposed to inviting you to open yourself up and letting go of stuff so that God can dwell within. Mm. Um, that's just, I, I feel so strongly about that. <laughs> yeah, and it's the letting go that's, so hard for most of us. Um, oh, it's excruciating. So yeah, the letting go has all the earmarks of death um, or grief of giving up stuff that we want to cling to for dear life, you know? Yeah. Well, on that, um, you and I and Brandon, we've been engaged in conversations about the state of the church as well. Um, music is a big part of church and has been historically. I mean, we could spend several podcasts on that to good end, probably, and maybe we should. Um, but for now, we'll just make note of it and uh, say that all of us, all three of us uh, on this conversation are deeply formed by our relationship with the church and have experienced the vicissitudes of all of the cultural stuff that's come up and been thrown at the church. And uh, we're now recognizing that we're facing a very interesting and critical moment in the stream of institutional church, certainly in the United States. And just on Tuesday, I, I read... Um, a newest uh, survey that now confirms that what has been in process is now for real. And that is that um, the young adults, that is 18 to 29 or 30 years of age, the largest self-identifying category religiously in that age group is none, N-O-N-E. Now, as I said, that's been coming on for a long time, and it was sort of inevitable, but now we're 
there, we're now there, that that's the largest religious group that it self-identifies. None. They have no religious identity. But interestingly enough, the vast majority of all of the respondents in that age group still profess belief in God or a higher power. They just don't self-identify with any organized expression of that. I make mention of it in my sermon on Sunday, actually. I was I found it so curious, or I guess I'm not surprised particularly, but it is it's an interesting moment for the church. And I'm wondering, uh, what what do you think? What what are you thinking about this evolution? Well, again, just to keep a motif running through our conversation, uh, this business of nature and nurture. Um, and I do think some of us are chosen um, in our DNA, birthwise, not because we're special, but just it resides, something resides there waiting to be awakened. And I suppose we could say, well, God does that for everybody. Um, but the nurture thing, and so I'm not surprised by the nun because I know just through my college teaching now, um, I have to use an entire different, entirely different vocabulary and language because um, a lot of the nuns have not come through church at all. So a hymn spelled H-Y-M-N is meaningless. They don't know what that means. And if they know an anthem, what amuses me immensely is uh, they know an anthem when the word rock is attached to it. And what amuses me is this is the music of my uh, busy youth. <laughs> and to hear the word rock anthem, it's like, oh, my gosh, uh, I am old if uh, rock can now be spoken of in anthemic terms. But, yes, these are, had, uh, these are Steve, these are students that come to Westminster? Yeah. And they have not none of that vocabulary. Why do they wind up at Westminster? Well, they're given... not there for church music. And oh, oh. They're okay. there because they've been, the um, seed of music has been planted in them. And, okay. Uh, one of the most beautiful commencement speeches um, in my career came from the director of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Canadian, who's also actually now the director of uh, the Metropolitan Opera, immensely gifted guy named Yannick. And he just said in the tenderest of tones, you know, to our student body, which at Westminster is the, in its heyday about 450, 500 uh, music students, he said, you know, you didn't choose music. Music chose you. Um, and so there's an incredible amount of awakening that needs to be happening there and an incredible amount of awakening that needs to happen in New York City. And, you know, again, you're right. I mean, these are... These are complex, long conversations that could span many, um, many podcasts. But our space seems to me a great awakener. <laughs> and the people who do find their way here and 
call it home with, gosh, it's, I think it's pretty much 100% that everyone giving testimony to why they've arrived at Christ Church, the building comes into play. And it's not because it's necessary. I mean, it is its beauty and its spectacularness, but I think there's an ancientness as well that uh, speaks speaks deeply in a way that, say, the Hammerstein Ballroom um, on 34th Street, which is a gargantuan Hillsong um, um, place, um, that a speaks in such a different way and of course i believe you know seeds in there gets watered and nurtured in all kinds of ways there's not one magic formula of course um, but i'm christ church has always been a place under your stewardship and i'd like to think even my own in terms of how i do worship with you and how i do cling to such things as the organ and an outstanding choir and the variety of repertoires um, that gets sung. But um, this is a place for deepening. So the seed gets watered and it can sprout, but um, I'm not sure every place the roots can go very far. And I feel like at Christ Church in this ancient building that dates in style from around the sixth century, and I love that connectedness to ancient things. Um, the roots will go as deep as I think one will allow them to, um, in terms of a kind of faithfulness to worship in this space and hearing the word proclaimed in the way it is and uh, being open to the power of the music that emanates from our choir and musicians and the piano and organ. Again, wondering thoughts. You know, there's a lot <clears throat> of conversation going on in church circles about how um, the church of post the post COVID church is going to have to rediscover its roots without its buildings. I mean, I've been ruminating on this for some time, actually, because that conversation has been heating up. And of course, the reality is that the <clears throat> institution of church, uh, as numbers decline, is going to struggle mightily with making decisions about its properties and so on. Now, Christ Church isn't at any risk in this, fortunately, but it does make me wonder about how the faith lives in the world um, and how it is formed both with locations like Christ Church and without locations like Christ Church. It's an interesting conversation that I think we're going to have to engage pretty pretty deeply in the coming, coming months. Um, I too, as you know, love the space, and we're at this wonderful moment where we're just about to reopen as when I say just about, hopefully if there's not another shutdown, hopefully by mid-February. If there is a shutdown, then by at least by Easter. But we're going to have a renewed uh, space 
that to me has always been an, an incubator of faith and serving a womb-like function for people. And as you have already indicated, those who stay have always indicated almost a mystical idea of being home, which was my own story. Hmm. First time I walked into the place. But anyway, I'm, I'm wondering about the theology of place and the theology of sanctuary itself. Of course, the concept of sanctuary is pretty important to keep a handle on, too. I mean, I think for me, though, like coming into Christ Church, it was different because the space felt foreign. You know, coming into the space actually was the thing that make, made me in some ways keep questioning whether this was the right decision or not to be here. And it was more the culture of sanctuary within the space that had been cultivated by the two of you and, you know, people, you know, in the church and leadership of the church that made me stay. The fact that I, that I wasn't, it wasn't just a place where we said that there was welcoming and there was community, but there actually was welcoming and community in the space, you know? Um, And I think that sometimes space can cultivate and help with that, but ultimately it comes down to a culture of, you know, an open table, a culture of, you know, everyone is truly welcome here um, that drew me in and has kept me here, you know? Yeah. And I think that as the church moves forward, I think a, a lot of the reasons that people are nuns now have more to do with the stipulations placed on them to be able to be a part of a community and to even enter into a sanctuary that has driven people away from identifying with, you know, a particular denomination or even just a, a, a church space, you know? The idea of that they were driven away as opposed to they just simply, what, you know? Yeah. Okay. Or, or already, or, or just from, what's out there in the ether of church, you know, even just like in the news or what you see in film and TV about church, it had already been communicated to them that I would not be welcome there either because of the way I've chosen to, you know, be authentically myself or the fact that I can't just, you know, accept all of these things and believe them before I can even step foot into the door or, you know, I, I think that a lot of a lot of the way that church has been portrayed in popular culture has has played a lot into um, people adopting a nun mentality when it comes to church. Because I think only the worst representations are often the ones that are represented in the ways people see it. Yeah. Well, it'll be an interesting challenging time frame in these next months and years <clears throat> coming out of COVID. Mm-hmm. And as, as Steve and I have, I know, discussed, are people learning new habits now about hmm. where they are physically and what does their physical presence? See, one of the things I think we do have to rediscover and where the church, I, I actually suspect that there may be a significant number of people who will want to be physically present again. Um, It's sort of like my experience singing Christmas carols in the park on Sunday, 
where it was clear to me that the people that were present in the park, and there were a lot of them, and they were vibrant and they were lively, they need they wanted to be physically present there, you know? Um, and I, it strikes me that that may yet prove to be true for church once it's once we're all able to be together again. I don't know, but I, I'm suspicious that that may very well be the case. I think that there's a chance of that like blip of revival that could happen, right? You know, after uh, you can look back even in the course of my own life when there was like a big, you know, national reckoning of some sort, whether that was like 9-11 or something like that. People rushed back to church in some ways. I remember like my church, you know, the Sundays following that, I mean, the it just a huge spike in attendance for probably like a year maybe. And I think the question was, what did we do with that spike? You know, how did we care for those people? How did we react during that time? And I think that's a thing to think about as maybe this spike is on, on the way when people can return safely to church and are willing to try it out again or willing to come back for a time. Like, what do you do with that time? How do you get them more engaged with their faith? How do you inspire them and, um, and spur them on? What do you think, Steve? Is there a, do you have any gut on this? Well, my gut is it's just incredibly complicated because when you start to identify American culture in postmodern times, the descriptors um, don't speak well to church going. I mean, a culture mm. of entitlement, a culture of narcissism, um, culture mm. of extreme capitalism, meaning a desire for goods and money and things and um, objects like a, a big suburban home. And, um, you know, you come to a sermon at Christ Church and the minister starts talking about letting go and <laughs> giving up and <laughs> help emptying. And, and they flock. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you get them. That's how you them. <laughs> well, what was it you said, Brandon, that uh, the founder of Hillsong said to Carl Lentz, who was recently disgraced Hillsong, um, you, you, you said you described what preaching was about. They, you, the people need to leave feeling better than when they came. Is that right? Yeah. Something like yeah, that. Exactly. Well, and, well, you know, historically though, a century ago, it was, they need to feel worse than when they came. Because yeah. I've, I've heard the exact opposite of that as well. It's not, it's not exactly. A- my, my theory is that the idea isn't to market anything in a particular way. The idea is to say what seems to be true. And of course, that can be charismatic. It can also be a stumbling block, which Jesus was both. A char- you know, he was both charismatic as well as a stumbling block. Well, I think that's the thing that I've discovered being at Christ Church and being really in the first church in a long time that um, that is liturgical is it's guided by 
scripture and it's guided by the tradition. And so maybe one sermon may kind of point you and like may feel like one side of that spectrum or the other, but the next sermon won't, you know, you don't, you don't just to get to decide for 30 weeks that you're going to preach on sin. You know what I mean? Um, I've been in that church. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, liturgy is a kind of formal structure, just the way a church building is. A And liturgy existed in the early church as yep. well. It gave form. Uh, it gave, ex- gave a container, an expression, a, a way to pattern your, your, uh, your faith. And so I am, I've always found the liturgy, though we're not highly liturgical, we certainly are in essence, a, a liturgical church. Um, and that provides an appropriate and useful and necessary container for talking and holding what we are meaning when we say we have faith in God. And the, one of the beautiful things about it, even as Steve identified our sanctuary, is that it, it's, it has an all-encompassing uh, sensibility about it, both hi- historically so it stretches back in time into the present. Now, it's possible to be um, overly concerned about the history and forget about the present. But, the, but at our best, our present <clears throat> is informed by what is best in our history as well. And hopefully our sanctuary still expresses that. We're able to live into that. I'm a lot of passion around... Um, liturgy in the sense of not high church. Um, but um, the fact that we as creatures, the, I think that's reasonable to say the primary way we make sense of this earthly journey with all its joy and all its suffering is to tell stories. Very much like this podcast began with me telling a tiny, tiny part of my story. But we're we're great storytellers, and we know that from gosh, um, ancient time, ancient meaning like twenty, thirty thousand years ago, with the cave paintings in southern France, uh, southwest, western France, and Spain. That you know, this sense of going underground and making a ritual space. We don't know what the ritual was and necessarily what it marked, but it was clearly important for humans that many eons ago. And so liturgy in the sense that we walk with Jesus on an annual basis through this thing called lectionary and the events and days and seasons that we mark. And I like that walking the road in that way. Mm-hmm. I think most of us learn that as time passes, instead of the walk being boring because you've been there before, um, you can't wait, for example, in the season of Advent to get to the great texts of Isaiah, um, so rich in promise and, um, you know, who tires of uh, shepherds and angels and a virgin <laughs> conceiving and um wise men and crazy Herod um, and 
to just do that walking through that framework of liturgy becomes uh, such a powerful marker in a life. Um, yeah. Mm. And it's, it's one way to take the journey, of course. It's not to dismiss other traditions at all. Um, and we do get to make choices about which road we want to walk on in terms of spiritual journeys. Um, but true. I just like to... What's the right word? Um, just flew out of my brain. But, um, I like to preach is not the right word, but preach this this road, this way of traveling. Yeah. Advocate <clears throat> what you're looking for. Well, I think uh, we've set the stage for having some future conversations. <laughs> and uh, I agree. Um, more to come. Steve, I appreciate having the conversation. Uh, I know the listeners will appreciate it. We've given, hopefully, we've given them something to chew on. Um, so thanks a lot. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. Thank you, Brandon. Be well. Till next time.